Let's get to the message. We're in Luke chapter 24. Luke chapter 24, verses 1 to 8. On the first day of the week, very early in the morning, the woman took the spices they had prepared and went to the tomb. They found the stone rolled away from the tomb. But when they entered, they did not find the body of the Lord Jesus. While they were wandering about this, suddenly two men in clothes that gleamed like lightning stood beside them. In their fright, the woman bowed down with their faces to the ground. But the men said to them, why do you look for the living among the dead? He is not here. He has risen. Remember how he told you while he was still with you in Galilee, the Son of Man must be delivered over the, into the hands of sinners to be crucified and on the third day be raised again. Then they remembered his words. Let's pray. Thank you, Lord, that, that the living is not amongst the dead, that you have risen. The tomb is empty. And, and because you were res resurrected, Lord, we have a firm foundation for our faith. I pray, Lord, that today as we look upon that empty grave, that you would come and, and solidify something in our hearts. Thank you, Jesus. Amen. Amen. Now, for most of us, uh, Resurrection Sunday is pretty awesome. It is something we celebrate. Well, the whole Easter weekend is pretty awesome, I must say, because, because excuse me, it works together very well. I mean, Friday without Sunday is, is, a, is a bleak murder. So that's not something we'd want to celebrate, you know. That's uh, not the most positive church message you'll ever hear. But, but Sunday without Friday doesn't make any sense either. You know, that, that would have been a strange message. But when these two come together, it is the most powerful message ever preached. It is the most powerful story ever told. It, it changed the face of the world forever. And even though people have tried for the last 2,000 years, this is a story that could not be stopped. It's a church that could not be killed. It is absolute and pure power, and that's why I'm excited to, to share on this incredible, incredible story. But, but I want to take a little bit of a, maybe a little bit of a different angle, because the enemy of assurance, of this assurance that we have in the empty grave is doubt. It's doubt. And that's the very thing that, man, can sometimes shake our foundation a little bit, is, is actually doubt. And I believe there's no better time than Resurrection Sunday to talk about doubt. Is that okay? So today we're looking at Resurrection Sunday, but we're actually talking a little bit about doubt. And I want to say that every thinking human being, which is every human being, at some point in their lives, whether they are believers or unbelievers, have doubt. Even unbelievers get to a stage of saying, hey, wait a second, what if I'm wrong? What if there really is a God? What if I get to the end of the world and then I have to account for my life? What if? And in fact, the, the greatest atheistic thinkers of our time, they cannot say with full assurity that there is no God because they understand that that would not actually make sense because human beings cannot know everything. And this is important because even us as Christians, as believers, will go through stages of doubt in our lives. And I'm here to say, that's okay. It's okay that sometimes you have doubts. I do too. It's okay that sometimes we've got some unanswered questions. That's okay. 
everybody goes through this. I don't believe there's, there's ever been a Christian that, that hasn't gone through these times in their lives where they have to just pause a moment and think, oh man, what if I'm wrong? But I want to say today that we have this incredible, incredible moment in history that we can look at. And this is something that is so, so powerful because this is something Paul says. This one answer, this one moment is a foundation, an unshakable foundation for our faith. An unshakable foundation when there are many, many questions. Listen to what Paul says in 1 Corinthians chapter 15, verse 13 to 20. He says, if there is no resurrection of the dead then not even Christ has been raised. And if Christ has not been raised, our preaching is useless, and so is our faith. More than that, we are then found to be false witnesses about God, for we have testified about God that He raised Christ from the dead. But He did not raise Him from the dead. In fact, the dead, sorry, if He did not raise Him from the dead, the dead are not raised. For if the dead are not raised, then Christ has been not been raised either. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile. You are still in your sins. Then those who have fallen asleep in Christ are lost. If only for this life we have hope, if it's just a fleeting hope in Christ, we are all people most to be pitied. But Christ has indeed been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. And what Paul is saying is, is the whole Christian faith rests on this moment, this Resurrection Sunday moment. I mean, I mean, what he's explaining is, is if Christ is not written, then first and foremost, we have no message of hope for the lost world. It doesn't exist. He's saying if Christ has not been raised, then well, we, we actually have nothing to believe, and we have misinterpreted and misrepresented God every time we shared about the gospel or about the Bible. This is, this is what he's saying. He's like, we are empty. Our faith is empty. We are still under guilt and condemnations. And actually, believers are then pretty sad creatures that should be pitied by all people because, well, I mean, they have based their lives on illusions. But Christ has, in fact, been raised from the dead. See, if this was not true, even the strongest faith is, is empty. But because this is a fact, our faith has a solid footing in spite of difficult matters, situations, circumstances, question, times in our lives, uncertainty, false doctrines, false teachers. Because of the resurrection of Jesus Christ, our faith has a solid footing. This is the moment we're celebrating today. Now, I, now, I can't think of a better person to talk about. When we're looking at doubt, I like talking about Thomas, right? I mean, this is where we go to. Poor old doubting Thomas. And, and I think you guys know I think he gets a bad rap. Because I, I don't think, you know, he, his personality was a little, pessim, a little bit pessimistic. We'll get back to that in a moment. He was maybe a little bit depressed and, and, and that. But, but I think doubting Thomas can teach us a lesson or two today about, well, faith about establishing our faith in the empty grave. But why I like talking about Thomas is because he had a sense of, of sincere doubt. Now, now, why I say sincere doubt is because, like Thomas, you know, uh, you know our, our lives can have times of doubt, but, but when Thomas was met with fact and truth, Thomas believed. Now, why I want to say sincere doubt, because I want to differentiate between functional doubt and sincere doubt. 
Because a lot of people have functional doubt. That's actually just, I doubt this so I can sin, you know. It's just an excuse to go on living the way they want to live. They, they say, but I don't, I'm not so sure about this. So I'm going to do all of this, you know. Because I'm not so sure about this one thing about Jesus. I'm, gonna, I'm just going to go against them in everything else. That is functional doubt. It works really well for the person who does not want to repent and wants to continue sinning. So, so that's not what I'm talking about. I'm talking about a sincere doubt. I'm talking about Thomas being met with serious problems and issues in his life. And yet when truth comes, faith goes along with it. Now, it's very simple to spot, by the way, sincere doubt and functional doubt. It's quite simple. Uh, those who are functional doubters, uh, the function of it is to continue sinning. They'll always find new doubt. So when you have a conversation with them about, hey, but maybe this isn't the truth, they'll just find, yeah, but something else. You know, they're always the yeah, but people. You know, they, uh, but what about this? What about that? What about this? That's functional doubt. Uh, don't do that, okay? That just, it's an excuse to continue sinning. Sincere doubt. Like Thomas, when Jesus stood in front of him, his response was, my Lord and my God. My Lord and my God. Was every question answered? No. Will every question ever be answered? Not in this lifetime. But when sincere doubt is met with proof, the response is faith. And that's why I like Thomas, and that's why we need to talk about him a little bit. And I think there's, there's a couple of areas in Thomas' life that we can learn from, things that I think is quite relatable in Thomas's doubt, even for us. And one of the first areas I want to look at is, is personal failure. Before Jesus was crucified, they were still on their way to Judea. And, and uh, I mean, just there a few weeks ago, they were there. And when they were there, the religious leaders tried to stone Jesus. So when Jesus said, we're going back there, his disciples all said, wait a second, this does not seem like a good idea. Jesus, let's think about this. We've got a pretty good thing going here, all right? Look at all these followers. I mean, they want to literally make you a king. I don't know where you went when they did that, but, but anyway. They said, wait a second, let's, let's hang on to what we have here. And Thomas, the only one of the 12, said, no, if we're going there, let's us, let us go also as his words, that we may die with him. What a proclamation of loyalty and faith. I mean, this is, this is a big statement. All the others go, wait a second, and it's all there. You can go read it. Wait a second, Jesus. This is not a good idea. Thomas, chest out, in front of the pack, says, Jesus, if this is your plan, well, then I'm going to go die also. Yes, a little bit pessimistic. I'll, I'll grant that. Okay, so there's something about his attitude that looks at the half, uh, the glass half empty. I'll admit that. But he still said, my loyalty, Jesus, is to you. But unfortunately, on the night Jesus was taken, every single one of his disciples abandoned him. And this was tough. This is a tough situation that Thomas is in because here comes the statement of loyalty and then personal failure. Here comes this, I love Jesus, and then he did something he really should not have done. And this is so relatable because we've all been there at times in our lives when we just think, oh, my Lord, I want to live for you. I want to give everything to you. And then the next day comes and, and, and you do some things that's not as acceptable. Let's just say it that way. Let's not give examples because the list is just too long. And that personal failure, what it starts doing is it starts creating doubt in your heart. Not because there's real doubt, but 
man, you're just so disappointed in yourself. And this met with, obviously, Thomas's uh, attitude of, of maybe a little bit of pessimism, I think, got him to a place of depression. And we'll get back to that in a second, but where was he when Jesus started appearing to the other disciples? He was nowhere to be found. Where was Thomas? The second thing I think is so, so relatable is, is Thomas had some serious unmet expectations. I mean, imagine for a minute you walk with Jesus on earth and you're seeing these new teachings that is just blowing everyone's mind. It is just, it is the epitome of ethical teaching. It is the greatest that anyone has ever heard. It is challenging because they see Jesus saying things like, love your neighbor. I mean, increase our faith, Lord. Amen. This is the kind of teaching that Jesus was giving. Now, now, they were expecting the Messiah. They were waiting for the one who was going to come and rule again. This was the Old Testament prophecies that someone is coming, someone greater, someone's going to come and rule. And here comes Jesus, and he's claiming to be the Son of God, and he's living in a way that actually shows that he is the Son of God, and he's healing people, and he's ministering, and he's, I mean, he's just words of wisdom, and he's telling stories, and it's much of money. It's been incredible. And I think what started happening is, and we see that by people wanting to make Jesus king, literally by force, wanting to put him into political power, and then Jesus running away. I think there was still this expectation of, them, of the disciples wanting Jesus to rule. And then, Thomas had to watch his body being ripped to pieces and hang on a cross. I mean, there was this expectation. I mean, this is the Messiah, is it not? This is the one we've been waiting for. And it's, it's finally happening. It's finally here. Thousands of years of prophecy is adding up to this one moment. And then Thomas had to stand and watch Jesus die. And why that's so relatable is because you and I have had many times in our lives when we've had this expectation, we're like, but Lord, this is what I need. I'm praying for this. I, this, is what, this is what God, if you could just, if, you could, if this could just be my reality, and then it's not me. And this unmet expectation is difficult to deal with. And I think here in Thomas's life, it was one of the key things that caused him to become doubting Thomas. But God, if you're a good God, God, if you're a loving God, how could you? Which leads me to the third thing here is it creates doubt when, when God works in his way and not mine, doesn't it? Because I know that, that you and I, each and every one of us, knows the absolute best truth, right? We know best. Come on. You know what you need. You know what will be best for you. You know what your family needs. If you don't realize yet, I'm joking. Obviously, we don't know what we need. But still, when God works in His way and not ours, it's tough to deal with. The night before Jesus was crucified, he, he got together with his disciples, as we know, and he told them, I'm going to my father's house to prepare a place for you, and I'm going to come back for you. And then Jesus added, but you know where I'm going. And Thomas pipes up and he says, but Lord, we don't know where you're going. I don't know how to get there, which is a sincere question. Let's be real. I would have wanted to know the same thing. Here comes Jesus, and he's been ministering, and he's been, been just this incredible moment in history and all of a sudden he says I'm leaving and Thomas like you better give me a roadmap but instead of a roadmap 
He gives him a way of life. And this is not what Thomas was expecting. Thomas was expecting everything to be good and everything to be perfect. And yet, Jesus' plan was to work through martyrdom. Jesus' plan was to save through suffering. And these are are things that still in our lives, I, I want to say, these are relatable things for us because sometimes... What I thought would be best for myself, for my wife, and for my kids was not what God had in mind for me. In fact, it was only when I came to a place of saying, God, I'm now fine with never getting married when he gave me a wife. I was looking for so long, man. And then only when I got to the place of saying, okay, Lord, now it's okay. I I get it. And I was young. I don't know what I was on about, but I was thinking, sure, no. I'm fine with that, Lord, me and you. And then he gave me my wife. Because he doesn't work the way we want him to. He doesn't. And sometimes that can start creating doubt because I'm so sure what I need in life is a Ferrari. I'm, I'm, I'm still, I'm pretty convinced of it. The fourth thing that creates and deepens our doubt is separation. And this is key because you will notice that the first times, we can't go through all of it, but the first times that Jesus appeared, Thomas was nowhere to be found. Now listen, don't be too angry at Thomas. I feel for him. He probably went and sat by the seashore and, and with the image of Christ on a cross before his face. I think I might have also run away. But imagine, imagine he, what he must have felt the first time he saw his, his fellow disciples, his friends, and they're like, hey, Jesus was here. <laughs> I mean, he must have been crushed, man. Imagine for a moment. It's like, it's like the one Sunday you don't come to church, we give out Easter eggs. It's that kind of a thing, you know. And then you have to get here the next week, and you're like, What? I was gone for one week, and it's the week we get Easter eggs. We must have been so disappointed. But you and I do the very same thing. When there's times of doubt, of struggle, of pain, of of suffering in our lives, instead of running to a community of believers, we run from them. And I think in this modern day and age, it's even more dangerous because we run from the safety of objectivity and truth to the internet of subjectivity and telling us what we want to hear. Why am I correct in this belief? (laughs) So we isolate ourselves. We fill our minds either through, I mean, the internet or through our thoughts with deepening and deepening doubt instead of coming to a bunch of brothers and sisters who can say, hey man, it's going to be okay. To take us around the shoulder and say, hey, I know it's tough, but let's look forward. And, and these things, I, I know there are many more reasons for doubt, but, but these things in Thomas's life, I think, is it's so powerful because it's so, so relatable. But what turned Thomas around was the reality of the resurrection. What turned Thomas around was the reality of, of resting on the resurrection. And that was what overcame his 
doubts. Now, I want to quickly, let's go through it because there's two main points here. And, and the first point has like five points. So there's a lot of work to be done here. But the first thing I want to say, like on Friday, I told you guys why, why this is the truth. It is trustworthy. It is accurate. We cannot deny the reality, especially of the story of the gospel of Jesus Christ, Jesus' death and resurrection. This is a, an accurate historical document. And in the same sense today, I want to talk to you about the reality of his resurrection. Because if we don't have this, this cornerstone of our faith, which is the resurrection in place, then we will struggle. And like Thomas, when we do, we also get to the place of saying, my Lord and my God. So I want to give you a couple of reasons why the resurrection is proof of the kingship of Christ. First, is that the empty tomb proves the resurrection. Now, now this is important. And, and listen, we are going to get a little bit technical. If you want to take a quick nap, that's fine. All right. If you're down on the resurrection and you've got this lockdown, uh, it's fine. If, if you want some extra faith, then it's now time to hear. But the empty tomb proves the resurrection. Now, why I say that is no one disagreed that the tomb was empty. Let's just establish that truth real quick. The Christians, his followers, the believers, the Jews, the Romans, they all agreed that the tomb was empty. So we have to accept that. Okay, so now we're sitting with this issue. The tomb is empty. We have to ask why. And there's actually a couple of options why the tomb must be empty. Yeah, this is you know, theology class this morning. Enjoy it. But, but there's a couple of reasons. One of the first is that what some people say is, yeah, but Jesus' enemies stole the body. But that doesn't make any sense. It doesn't make sense. And I'll tell you why it doesn't make sense. Because they do not have an incentive to steal the body. Because if the body was there, it would prove their point. I mean, imagine if the early church started and they started saying, Jesus rose from the dead. The Jews are like, hold up, Peter. There's a body in that tomb. Done. Early church finished. So there was no incentive for the enemies of Jesus to steal the body. In fact, there's an incentive to protect him. And that's literally why they got the Romans to seal the tomb and guard it. So no, we throw that out. Did the Romans steal the body? Some people say the Romans. No, because the guards in front of the tomb most probably got murdered, by the way. Because that's how it worked in the Roman army. They would not have fallen asleep because if they did, they would get murdered. That, that's, it, it's, a, it's a tough job, I'll be honest. It's not one I like, sleep on the job, dead. Um, lose his body, dead. Uh, you know, it's, like, it's, it's, it's just not a good scenario for them. Plus, they've got nothing to gain. They had no issue with the Jews or with the Christians at that time. In fact, they were just like, if I could protect the body, the Jews that almost rose up three days ago would be pretty quiet. So no, this, that could not have happened. The third option is obviously Jesus' disciples. Maybe the disciples stole the body, but again, no. No, 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 that, that wouldn't have happened. And there's a couple of reasons we can quickly go through them. Now, now, first of all, obviously the tomb was secured, sealed, and protected by Roman guards. They would not have fallen asleep because dead. Um, so, so they was pretty safe. They couldn't get in. Number two, the stone was pretty heavy. And even if they fell asleep, something like that would have woken them up. You know, it wouldn't, you, know you can't sing them a lullaby. No. So, so that's, not, that's not an option. Now, now this is real, guys, because I'm, I'm showing you guys something very important. I also think they were way too depressed, to be quite honest, um, to, to think of something like that. But one of the main reasons is because the nature of these people, their character, is attested to. And no one would die to prove a point they know is false. So if these men and women were willing to die for the resurrection of Jesus Christ or, or post-resurrection of Jesus Christ, they wouldn't lie about it. That doesn't make any sense. That doesn't make any sense whatsoever. 
I mean, why would you give your life for something you know is not true? That you know we stashed Jesus' body, but, but I'll die for it. That, no. No, it does, I'm sorry. It just logically, it doesn't make sense, which leaves us with one conclusion. The Scriptures must be true. It's the only thing that makes sense. It's the only thing that makes sense. Second thing is the grave clothes is proof, by the way, that Jesus is alive because when John saw it, the scriptures say that he saw it and believed. So even the way the grave clothes were there caused belief. Now, if it was grave robbers that came to steal Jesus' body, they would probably take the cloths with him. If it was the disciples, I mean, that doesn't make any sense, but the cloths were there and the Bible describes it as almost neatly folded up and left there. Grave robbers usually don't fold up the clothes. Not in my experience anyway, can I say it that way? But when the disciples saw the cloth, they knew. They knew Jesus is alive. The third thing why um, it's pretty important to, to notice the reality of the resurrection is Jesus appearing to people afterwards proves that he's alive. I mean, that's pretty concrete proof. This, is, this, is, this should land it for us. But the Gospel of John mentions four uh, appearances of his resurrection to Mary Magdalene, um, to the disciples without Thomas, to the disciples with Thomas, and then to seven of the disciples by the Sea of Galilee. So four. In the Gospel of John, four distinct ones. But Paul goes on. He says uh, quite a few of them, including at one time where he was with 500 people at the same time. Now, if you didn't know this... Um, the Bible is a, is a library of books, and this New Testament was written by eyewitnesses of the, resurrection, of, of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. We have here people who saw Jesus after he rose again that penned letters for us, for the churches, and said, this is real. Now, this is incredible. I, I want to read you just a quick thing by uh, J.N.D. Anderson. He was the, formerly the professor of Oriental Laws and director of the Institute of Advanced Legal Studies at the University of London. Okay, so a clever guy. But as a lawyer, he wrote from a legal perspective. So he put Jesus on trial. He put the resurrection on trial. And listen to what he says. The most drastic way of dismissing the evidence would be to say that these stories were mere fabrications, that they were lies. But so far as I know, not a single critic today would take such an attitude. In fact, it would be, sorry, it would really be an impossible position. Think of the number of witnesses, over 500. Think of the character of the witnesses, men and women, who gave the world the highest ethical teaching it has ever known, and who even on the testimony of their enemies lived it out in their lives. Think of the psychological absurdity of picturing a little band of defeated cowards cowering in an upper room one day, and then a few days later transformed into a company that no persecution could silence. And then attempting to attribute this dramatic change to nothing more convincing than a miserable fabrication they were trying to foist upon the world. That simply wouldn't make sense. Now that's high legal talk and what he's saying, it just doesn't add. It just doesn't add up. The fourth reason we know that Jesus rose again is because people's lives were changed. People's lives were changed. And after everything that, that his followers went through, after the resurrection, the church became unstoppable. I love the story of the church because I think the church is one of the biggest evidences for Christ. 
that's undefeatable, even though they have tried. They have tried very hard to defeat the church. It is a message that is unshakable. It is not even disprovable. In fact, there's a man, he wrote, I forget his name now, but he wrote the book, A a Case for Christ or, or Evidence That Demands a Verdict. It's a movie as well that I suggest you do watch. It's an atheist that got angry because his wife was praying. And he says, I'm going to take you out. I'm going to disprove the resurrection of Jesus Christ. Spoiler alert, if you haven't seen the movie or read the book, he became a Christian because he couldn't disprove the resurrection of Christ. Because the resurrection is the sure foundation, even for Thomas, that made the difference between doubt and faith. And this is the incredible thing here that the risen Jesus, this incredible king we're talking about, is it's him who brings us from this place of doubt into faith in our lives. And I think that's so important because when he appeared to Thomas, he didn't say, go look for something elsewhere. He said, look at me, Thomas. Look at me. And I believe that we still have that same opportunity today. I mean, the disciples didn't have eyewitness accounts. We need to give the authority of the Bible back to the Bible. It's not a storybook. These are eyewitness, truthful accounts inspired by the Holy Spirit to guide us and instruct us and make sure we understand the truth of Jesus Christ. I mean, poor Thomas. I mean, if if it was you and I, we would just page, oh, Thomas, you didn't finish the gospel, friend. He rose again. He didn't have that. But you and I do. And when you face times of doubt in your life, do not pull away into yourself. Do not go and find someone to, to agree with your doubt. Rather, go to the person of Jesus Christ contained in the wonderful pages of the gospel that we have in front of us. Go look at him. Go look for him. Go and, go and look at these, these crucial things like who is Jesus. Read about his miraculous, miraculous sorry, birth, his teachings, his miracles. Go read about his death, his resurrection. Let me tell you, every time that I get down and out, I'm not invigorated by a worship song, not a chance. The thing that gets me out is keeping my eyes on the cross and the resurrection of Jesus Christ. It is not new doctrines or fancy theologies, not a chance. It is the simplicity of the king who died and rose again. That's what gets me up. Because it's an irrefutable truth. It's a very foundation for our faith. And when we stand on this, when we stand on the gospel, the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, that is where our faith is secure. John 20, verse 30 to 31 John writes and he says, Jesus performed many other things in the presence of his disciples, which are not recorded in this book. But these are written that you may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So John wrote down for us what he said is important, that we may believe that Jesus is the Messiah, the risen Christ. And that's where we find ourselves today in this celebration of the irrefutable truth of an empty grave. 
And it's in a time of our lives when, when doubt comes in that we must go back to the firm foundations of our faith, which is things like an empty grave. And we get back to that and, and conclude that, well, it's true. I might not understand what's happening here in my life, but this is true. I might not know what to do with this pain at the moment, but, but this is true. I might not know what to do with this confusion at the moment, but this is true. This is true. See, the empty grave is more than Easter eggs and communion, even though we are going to take communion in, in a moment to close off the service today to celebrate what Jesus did for us and, and to proclaim our faith in His kingship. But I don't believe we'll ever have evidence for everything we need. I think all doubt will only one day be gone when we get to Jesus. But when we cling to these things, the fact of the resurrection, man, it gives us a firm foundation for our faith. So today, if you're in a place of, of saying, Hein, I do have some doubts. I do. I mean, you're looking at this list of, of, of Thomas's issues and you're saying, yes, personal failure, that's definitely there. Unmet expectations, I still have a few of those. You know, when God doesn't do things my way, that's definitely in there. Maybe you're even saying, Hein, I've definitely been isolating myself, deepening my doubts. Lord, today we want to admit that we too sometimes have doubts. Lord, we want to admit that we too at some times have unmet expectations where we've acted like we shouldn't, where we think we know better than you and where we've isolated ourselves just like Thomas did. But Lord, this morning, your church is standing on the irrefutable reality of the resurrection of Jesus Christ. This morning, your church is standing on the truth of an empty grave. A moment that validated your teaching, that, that made everything true. So I want to thank you, Jesus, that as your church, we remember you this morning and we're going to take communion together as your church saying, Lord, we don't have all the answers, but we believe. Lord, we still have a lot of scars, but we believe. Lord, we still have a lot of trials. We still have a lot of hurts. We still have a lot of mourning, but we believe. So, Lord Jesus, I thank you that this morning we can think about your body that was really broken for us so that we might have life, so that we might be forgiven, so that we might be made righteous.
Lord, I want to thank you for the promise. The promise that you're preparing a place for us with the Father. That all those who have gone before us and had faith in you is going to share in the glory of your presence for all eternity. I want to thank you, Lord, that we have assurance because of the empty grave. That every promise is true. That we can stand on it. And even when we face suffering in this world, we look towards a bright future with our King. Thank you, Lord, for every promise that was fulfilled through your blood. I want to thank you, Lord, at your church this morning. While we might still have a lot of questions, because we are sincere doubters, and our doubt has been met with truth, we're walking out as a church full of faith. Faith in the person of Jesus Christ. In his atoning sacrifice, his death on the cross that made it possible for us to be separated from our sin and from death. And faith in the resurrection that validated your teaching, that proved who you were, and that set in motion your church. Now, Lord, may we go with the same vigor that the early church had. Because today we say, like Thomas did when he was met with the truth of the resurrection, my Lord and my God. Amen.